If you're here, that means that you stuck with us during our time off while we changed some things, and we appreciate your continued support. Each month as I researched the episodes that I've previously presented to you, I fell deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and learned so much more about the Bahamas than I ever knew. I've brought you so far true crime and folk tales from the Bahamas, and I've been honored to share those stories with you, and I will continue to do so. But from now on, my efforts are now going to be redirected to bringing you everything and anything of an historical nature that regards to the Bahamas. I did this because I wanted to share everything I've learned about this beautiful country and its history that's so rich and diverse. So after some careful deliberation, I've decided to change the name of this podcast from the dark side of paradise to Bahamian Stories to match the new direction I've decided to take. Our episodes will now include any stories related to the history of the Bahamas, both past and present. I'll no longer solely focus on stories that only revolve around true crime and folktales, but I will continue to include them throughout this podcast. To get us started, we might go a little bit off the beaten path to get to where we need to go, but it's necessary in order to properly explain the history of the Bahamas, an archipelago of over 700 islands. Did the Bahamas even exist in Earth's earliest history? Who were its original inhabitants? I began writing this episode hoping to answer those very questions. But as I read more about Bahamian history, I began to realize that in order to properly explain the origins of the islands and its first people, I would need to start at the very beginning of time. Because to understand how the islands formed and where its people came from, I had to begin with the creation of everything and how our planet, called Earth, came to be. I know these are not simple questions with simple answers, but in this episode, I'll attempt to answer those questions using empirical scientific evidence viewed through a lens of science and research sourced from highly reputable origins. We'll go through the timeline of human history together because in order to truly understand history, You can't just pick a spot and begin. History is an interconnected web of people, places, and time that must be respected and viewed in its entirety from past to present. History can't be looked at as a single moment in time. It's every moment that's ever happened that's led us to today and will carry us beyond. We have to string together the events and the people involved so that we can understand our place in the world and how we came to be in it. Hopefully you'll learn something you didn't know, like I did, and will have expanded your understanding of the world, yourself, and the people and places responsible for life as we know it. This episode may conflict with the views of those that are believers in the religious creation stories as I attempt to explain the origins of life using science. For those listeners that are religious, I don't want this episode to be perceived as being dismissive to anyone's religious beliefs. In fact, I consider myself to be a religious person, but I do believe that science and religion aren't mutually exclusive. The two play equal roles in the lives of humans today, and each strives to help us explain our origins in different ways that should be respected. There's a long road ahead to explain the questions asked, so grab a bowl of conch salad, take a sip of a gombe smash, and listen closely, because these are Bahamian Stories, and I'm your host, Stephen Fountain. (music) 
Science tells us that 14 billion years ago, physicists believe the universe began as an infinitely small speck, smaller than a grain of salt, that expanded to an octillionth its size, that's a one with 27 zeros, in less than a trillionth of a second, known as the Big Bang. But before that moment, there was no matter, no space, and time did not exist. Science is still unsure exactly what set of conditions brought it about, but it is the most widely accepted and respected explanation for creation. An interesting theory about the Big Bang comes from a mathematician and 2020 Nobel Prize winning physicist from the University of Oxford named Sir Roger Penrose, who theorized that our universe is one of many in a series of deaths and rebirths. And he postulated that one day, although not anytime soon, our universe would suffer the same fate again, collapsing in on itself in a violent death only to recreate a brand new universe starting the process all over again. So possibly what he's saying here is that the infinitely small speck could have once been an entire universe long before our own that eventually collapsed in on itself, destroying everything that could have possibly existed in the process. And once done collapsing, what remained existed as a tiny, infinitely small speck filled with the leftover energy stuffed into it until it exploded under the pressure, creating the universe anew. Scientists actually have a strong belief that billions of years from now, our universe will too collapse. Thankfully, we're nowhere near having to worry about it unless you're planning on utilizing some sort of futuristic, age-defying technology. And if you know a guy, send me a message after the show. When we hear the words Big Bang, many of us instantly assume it was an explosion in the traditional sense. You know, boom, flame, smoke, destruction. But the Big Bang wasn't an explosion at all but rather a rapid expansion from the micro to the macro of unfathomable proportions and speed, creating matter, time, and spewing material at a subatomic level into what would become our universe. That might be a little difficult to conceptualize, so let's try to picture it. Imagine you have a deflated balloon that is the infinitely small speck pre-Big Bang. The deflated balloon is already filled with these subatomic particles. Now, picture the deflated balloon that's been pre-filled with these subatomic particles begins to inflate rapidly, and then it doesn't stop inflating. With these particles inside now free to move about as it expands. And that is the Big Bang in its most simplest terms. But here's the interesting thing about our universe. It's still expanding and scientists believe there might be no end. The standard model of particle physics, which is strongly supported by extensive experimental results, suggests the material universe is assumed to be built by these subatomic particles. But how did everything in the universe all matter, life, emerge from these particles. I must admit I had little knowledge of this particular topic firsthand and spent a week or more learning about something that I was never taught in school. 
These topics pushed my capacity for understanding to its very limits and even challenged a friend of mine who studied chemistry in university. So I'll try to keep this section as brief as I can while giving you what I hope is a basic understanding as to how those particles released during the Big Bang turned into matter. The foundations of life and everything in the known universe is made up of particles, invisible to the human eye and exist on the subatomic level. For every particle, there is a corresponding opposite called an antiparticle. Particles are the smallest units of ordinary matter that can form a chemical element. Every solid, liquid, gas, and plasma is made up of particles. Particles form elements, and the particles emitted during the Big Bang would come to form all the matter in our known universe. Democritus, a Greek philosopher from the 5th century BC, knew that if a stone was divided in half, the two halves would have essentially the same properties as the whole itself. He named these small pieces of matter atomos, the Greek word for indivisible, until scientists in the 20th century split the atom, revealing its true nature hidden inside. Quantum mechanics studies the fundamental theories in physics that describes the physical properties of these particles. Once the atom was split open, the material inside was dubbed the elementary particles. Particles are governed by four main fundamental forces known to exist. These forces have different effects on particles and can cause them to transform or establish bonds creating brand new particles. The strong force is the strongest of the four fundamental forces. It's 6,000 trillion trillion trillion. That's 39 zeros after the six, times stronger than the force of gravity, and exists in a property known as color charge, studied under a field called quantum chromodynamics. These color charges are not the colors in the visual sense. The varying color charges of particles only dictates the bonds they are allowed to form among other color-charged particles. Because of the color-charge designations of a particle, they can become attracted to each other over long distances. The electromagnetic force, also called the Lorentz force, is less felt than the strong force and acts between charged particles. Opposite charges attract one another and like charges repel. The electric component acts between charged particles whether they're moving or stationary, creating a field by which the charges can influence each other. The weak force is less felt than the electromagnetic force and involves the exchange of particle force carriers known as W and Z bosons. Force carriers are messengers that allow particles to interact. The weak force is responsible for particles decaying, breaking down, or transforming and is usually expressed as the literal change of one type of subatomic particle into another. This interaction happens between particles at extremely close distances. The gravitational force, or gravity, is the weakest and acts between all matter. The gravitational force is a force that attracts any objects with mass. The elementary particles that are the basis of all matter in the universe are separated into two groups known as fermions and bosons, which are differentiated most simply by their spin. Fermions spin at half integers and bosons have a spin integer of one. We won't go into too much detail about spin, but it's one of the ways physicists differentiate the behavior of one particle 
and how it behaves compared to another. Both fermions and bosons are affected by the previously mentioned fundamental forces, but in different ways that will result in various outcomes. Fermions are named after the man that discovered them, a man named Enrico Fermi, an Italian-American physicist who is credited as the creator of the first nuclear reactor. The second elementary particle, the boson, was given its name by physicist Paul Dirac after Indian physicist Satyendra Nath Bose and Albert Einstein, whom he felt contributed to its discovery. Albert Einstein is the famous Austrian physicist that's most well known for his famous equation E equals mc squared, known as the theory of relativity. The theory of relativity is very important to physics, but we're not going to dive too deep into it. Simply stated, it says that energy and mass, matter, are interchangeable. They are different forms of the same thing. Now back to the elementary particles called fermions and bosons. There are two kinds of fermions known as quarks and leptons. Each has six variants that exist known as flavors that differentiates them. Quarks have various properties including electric charge, color charge, mass, and spin. They come in six flavors known as up, down, charm, strange, top, and bottom quarks. And each flavor of quark is further categorized by their color charges of red, blue, or green. And as every particle has an antiparticle, every color charge has a corresponding anti-color charge. For example, red quarks and a anti-red quark. Most of the matter in the universe as we know it is made up of either up or down quarks. The rest of them are so unstable that they break down or decay too quickly to form meaningful bonds. Now we'll move on to bosons. There are various types of bosons, but for the purpose of this episode, we'll discuss the one in particular that I consider to be the most relevant, gluons. Gluons are also color charged, and because of that, similarly color charged quarks are attracted to them, and vice versa, via the strong fundamental force. Gluons were given their name because they are the glue that hold quarks together allowing them to form combinations based on their color charges that can result in new, even more complex particles. Because quarks are fermions and fermions have a spin of half, all quarks follow this principle of having fractional charges. Up, charm, and top quarks have a charge of positive two-thirds, and down, strange, and bottom quarks have a minus one-third charge. When three different quarks come together, such as the red up quark at positive two-thirds charge, the blue up quark at positive two-thirds charge, and the green down quark at minus one-third charge bond, they form a positively charged proton at positive one. Another example of this is the formation of the neutron that forms after color-charged quarks bond, such as the red down quark at minus one-third charge, the green down quark at minus one-third charge, and a blue up quark at positive two-thirds charge bond together to form the neutron, with its neutral charge of zero. And as a result, it feels no attraction or repulsion. When these quark combinations create either a proton or a neutron, both are considered to make up what's called an atomic nuclei, 
nuclei from the Latin nucleus or nucleus, meaning kernel or seed. It's similar to a nucleus in biology, in that it's the core of the cell, just as the nuclei in physics is the core of an atom that allows it to begin forming new bonds. So now that we've discussed quarks, let's move on to the second type of fermion known as a lepton. Leptons are governed by the fundamental forces known as the weak and electromagnetic force. Leptons have six variants called flavors that are separated into two major categories of negative and neutral charges. The three negatively charged leptons are electrons, taus, and muons. And the three lepton flavors that have no charge are called electron neutrinos, tau neutrinos, and muon neutrinos. For the purpose of this episode, I will only be discussing the negatively charged electron specifically, because the electron is of profound importance when it comes to the creation of even more complex particles. Because negatively charged leptons, like the electron, are affected by the electromagnetic forces, it causes them to attract to particles with opposing charges, bringing them closer together, forming new bonds. Electrons have a negative charge of minus one, which is its ground state, meaning its lowest possible charge. Now back to quarks for a moment and how they relate to leptons. When the quarks began to collect, like when they created the positively charged proton at plus one, that positive charge is lured to the opposing negative charge of the electron at minus one. That particular bonding will come to be known as the first atom, called the hydrogen atom, which is number one on the periodic table of elements exerting an electrical charge of zero. Because of the plus one charge of the proton and the negative one charge of the electron, they amount to a zero charge. Now that I've explained what role fermions and bosons play, you should have a concept of how particles bond and transform into new ones that then go on repeating this process over and over in different variations that will yield different creations. This is how all matter in the universe began, and how hydrogen, helium, carbon, water, and even light were created. 4.6 billion years ago, all of these particles began to form a dense collection of interstellar dust and hydrogen gas known as a molecular cloud. This dense molecular cloud soon collapsed in on itself under its own gravity, and the cloud began to spin faster and faster until it flattened into a disk, pulling the material, mostly hydrogen atoms, to its center in an explosive collision that would create the first star in the universe, the protosun. The sun we see in the sky today is said to be the third sun in a series of births and deaths for the star. Inside the sun, a process called nuclear fusion takes place. The hydrogen particles are constantly colliding, bonding, or decaying, producing hydrogen, helium, heat, and light as byproducts. It's those combinations and their volatile interactions that will keep the sun burning and emitting the light and heat we need for billions of years to come, until it will finally burn out and die, like all stars eventually do. Whatever gases and interstellar dust was left over from the formation of this proto-sun formed into a swirling disk called a solar nebula. Everything in space spins. This is called inertia. Because space has no gravity, 
objects in space spin and continue spinning because there are no external forces being applied to stop them. Inside the solar nebula, science explains that more and more particles emerged like carbon and water, among others, which began forming clumps known as accretion. This process of accretion continued over millions and billions of years, as these clumps would eventually grow to form larger bodies called planetesimals. Some planetesimals grew to become what are called terrestrial planets like Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, all of which have solid surfaces and a mixture of various chemical elements that would make up their atmosphere. These terrestrial planets had formed closer to the center of the solar nebula, near the proto-sun where temperatures were much warmer. The elements that made up these terrestrial planets were constantly in flux from the proximity to the newly formed sun, allowing various chemical reactions that formed their solid states. Whereas what are known as the Jovian planets, named after Jove, which is another name for the Roman god Jupiter, but more commonly called the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, formed furthest away from the center of the nebula, where temperatures were much cooler and the elements that formed them, unlike those of the terrestrial planets, mostly remained unchanged. And what about the asteroid belt? Large chunks of rock that exist in orbit right between Mercury and Venus, that separates the terrestrial planets from the Jovian gas giants. Some scientists believe that these rocks are leftover planetesimals that failed to form during the creation of the planets. Inside our solar system, the planets soon became trapped in orbit around the Sun, the center of our universe. This is known as the heliocentric model established by Nicholas Copernicus. In fact, before the work of Nicholas Copernicus, a Polish 14th century mathematician and astronomer, the world had incorrectly believed for centuries in the geocentric model perpetuated by the Greeks, which stated that the Earth was the center of our universe. But why does everything in our solar system, including the planets, orbit the Sun? This is due to the size of the Sun and its gravity. The Sun is the largest object in our solar system at roughly a diameter of 860,000 miles, compared to the largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter, which is only a mere 87,000 miles in diameter. Because gravity attracts anything with mass and our Sun is the largest object in our universe, everything in our solar system is pulled towards it. Sir Isaac Newton, a British mathematician and physicist who led the scientific revolution of the 17th century, made most famous by laying the groundwork for the explanation for the force that would come to be known as gravity when he observed an apple falling from a tree. Sir Isaac Newton's observations on gravity would eventually lay the framework for what would come to be known as Newton's laws that were fundamental to understanding motion. In the first law, it states that any object will not change its motion unless a force is applied. In the second law, the force of an object is equal to its mass times its acceleration. In the third law, when two objects interact, they apply forces to each other of equal magnitude and opposite direction. Now hopefully you understand how particles interact with each other to form more complex bodies and how those combinations could have resulted in hydrogen, helium, water, carbon, and oxygen, the building blocks of life.
We now also know how collections of these elements formed large chunks of material called planetesimals that would make up all the eight planets in our solar system. Pluto was once our ninth planet, but in August 2006, the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, downgraded the status of Pluto to that of a dwarf planet. Dwarf planets are smaller than planets as their name suggests, and Pluto's status as to whether it's a planet or a dwarf planet is still being debated to this day. The story of how our moon formed 4.5 billion years ago is directly related to the earliest version of our planet, called Proto-Earth. Scientists debated for centuries over the origins of the moon, but today, based on the evidence collected from the Apollo missions conducted by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, more commonly known as NASA, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's been agreed that the earliest version of our planet was once much larger in size, and long ago came into contact with another planet-sized body hurtling through space roughly the size of Mars. The result was a collision, explosion, melting, and the recombination of the two planets into one that is our Earth today. In fact, the collision left the surface of the Earth superheated and covered in liquid magma. What remained of the planet-sized body which collided with the Earth broke away, gathered, and was caught in Earth's gravity, and over time, formed into the Moon. This particular theory of the Moon's formation is called the Giant Impact Hypothesis, or the Big Splash. The Moon is a dead, barren rock, but the Moon influences life as we know it on Earth. It influences the oceans, our weather, and the hours in our days. Without the moon, tides would fall, nights would be much darker, seasons would be altered, and the length of our days would be changed. After the collision, the temperatures on the surface of the Earth were hotter than 400 degrees Fahrenheit, with an atmosphere mainly made up of carbon dioxide and methane, with only a little water vapor existing in the atmosphere. So where did all of our planet's water come from? Some scientists believe that after tens of millions of years, the planet cooled and that water vapor fell to the Earth in the form of liquid water. Some scientists also believe that chemical reactions deep inside the Earth's crust began to expel water onto the surface of the planet, forming our oceans. And others believe that asteroids containing water or encased in ice bombarded the Earth sometime after it had cooled and exploded on the surface of the planet releasing an enormous volume of water in the process. Science has yet to come up with a definitive answer, but those are the most highly respected theories out there. The planet was covered in water, but it was still devoid of any life. But as scientists are known to do, there is still an active debate on whether life began on the planet Earth, or did life arrive on Earth based on the theory known as panspermia which was first conceived by the ancient Greeks, which originated from the Greek word pan, which meant all, and the word sperma, which meant seed. Their theory was that life arrived on planetesimals, asteroids, and comets. But regardless of where life came from, DNA evidence tells us that life on Earth derived from a single species of bacteria 3.5 billion years ago. 
After the formation of the Earth and ocean some one billion years earlier, the first microscopic organisms called prokaryotes began to evolve in the primordial soup of the early ocean near deep sea thermal vents that spewed a cocktail of superheated elements and compounds like methane and carbon that they fed on. Soon more microscopic organisms emerged, including plant life like algae that would eventually make its way from the ocean floor to the surface of our planet, growing on rocks, breaking down the rocky exterior of the Earth, giving us soil. But during this time, the Earth's atmosphere still needed oxygen to support more complex life. This is where a microscopic bacteria called cyanobacteria, more commonly known as blue-green algae, comes in handy. Cyanobacteria absorbs carbon dioxide and uses the sun's energy to expel it as oxygen. This process is known as photosynthesis. Today, with deforestation and the pollution of the oceans and the organisms within it, our planet is producing more and more carbon dioxide with less means today of converting it to breathable oxygen. Marine organisms like phytoplankton, a form of microscopic marine algae, account for 50 to an amazing 80% of breathable oxygen in our atmosphere, and plant life on our planet accounts for about 20%. It's vitally important that we consider the effects we have as a species on our planet if we'd like it to continue staying habitable for the beings that require oxygen to survive. The one thing scientists have agreed on is that without the organisms in our oceans converting carbon dioxide to oxygen and the plant life on the surface of the earth doing the same, plant and animal life would quickly go extinct. Thanks to cyanobacteria, the earth had an oxygen-rich atmosphere and over millions of years, the earth would be teeming with complex plant and animal life of all varieties. Soon after, the earth entered the Paleozoic era when large reptiles called dinosaurs had become the dominant species and all life on Earth existed on one supercontinent scientists call Pangaea, surrounded by a superocean called the Panthalassic Ocean. Over millions of years, Pangaea would begin to violently tear itself apart due to the shifting plates in the Earth's crust, and the continents began to drift apart. These large chunks of land that broke away in a violent upheaval completely changed the landscape of our planet, and this would happen again multiple times before the continents finally settled where they are today. Earth was now dramatically transformed after the destruction of the supercontinent called Pangaea, but there were still many more drastic changes on the way, and one in particular would come some 60 million years ago in the form of an asteroid called Chicxulub. The Chicxulub asteroid was over 10 miles in diameter and struck the Earth somewhere in the Yucatan, Mexico, and resulted in the extinction of over 90% of all life in the ocean and over 75% of all life on land. Any non-avian dinosaurs went extinct, along with all mammals on land larger than a modern-day rat, and overnight the surface of the Earth was forever changed for what survived. Okay, uh, wow. <laughs> we just covered the creation of everything, called the Big Bang. We learned how particles form elements, the building blocks of life. We learned how the planets in our universe were formed, 
how our sun produces heat and how our moon controls the tides. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed preparing it, as it will be one of many in a series that will seek to explain the history of the Bahamas and its first inhabitants. We covered a lot today, and next episode we'll discuss the ancestors of humanity and how we went from primates and trees to the founding of the world's first civilizations. You can only understand the history of the Bahamas and its people by first learning about those that came long before them paving the way. When we're through with this series on the origins of the islands of the Bahamas and its people, you will have a greater appreciation and see it among one of the most important places and civilizations in human history. This has been Bahamian Stories. I'm your host, Stephen Fountain. Tune in next episode.